You are about to listen to a sermon from Common Ground Church in Rapid City, South Dakota. We hope to see you in person. For more information, visit commongroundcma.org. First, some other guys. Uh, let's see: uh, Peter, Jared. Uh, who else came? Matt came, and Job. Job, don't forget your jacket; it's in the back. And Jake came, and Jake knows what he's doing with construction. I somewhat know what I'm doing with construction, um, but then to watch these guys try to kick a wall down—that was really funny. Just so you know, because uh, Peter's a soccer player, so he was like soccer kicking the wall. He's like trying to you know, trying to get at it, and I had to show these guys how to like stomp through the wall, and uh, it was it was a lot of fun actually. That was a good good discipleship moment there. So thank you guys for that. Um, yeah, that was that was a good time. Uh, but these guys came and helped, and we knocked it down, and then put it all back together. And the reason we're doing this whole thing is because um, we uh, we do value that that as uh, multi-generations, I don't know if you know this or not, but the highest percentage, uh, well, there was a study done by Berkeley and by uh, UCLA and by uh, Biola, those three universities put a study together and they, uh, they, they, did a, uh, they did a bunch of studies on peoples whose faith, they grew up in the church and their faith stuck with them. They said the big thing that was the number one thing that ran through all of those faiths that stuck with people from childhood all the way up through adulthood was people who were connected multi-generationally. People are connected to old and young alike. And then they were talking about the fact that the church has oftentimes segregated people off into different places, into different areas, and said, no, this age group here, this age group, this, this age group here, we're going to have a youth group, we're going to have an old person's group, we're going to have a, we're going to have a kid's group, all this stuff. And we segregate people off, and then all of a sudden our faith is not sticking with us. And so this is an effort to be able to keep everybody together. And please, just so you know, this is, um, that we, we have a, we, we value different voices and making sure that we are connected together. And so there's a reason why we knock that wall down is, you know, our zero to fours and people are going to be in there. But they're also, it sounds like we, may, we might be working on, uh, on trying to do some scriptural studies in there during the time and all that. And, and the kids can be in here. And so we really value that. Um, we've been walking through the book of Nehemiah this summer. And in the book of Nehemiah, we've been uh, trying to look into Nehemiah and find all of the things that are... Um, all of the things in Nehemiah that reflect Jesus and reflect uh, His kingdom to us. And so today, we're going to take a look into that again. And uh, because we've had the kids in here, I've tried to channel my inner VBS guy, and we have these hand motions that walk us through the great storyline of Nehemiah. And so we're going to jump into those right away and see if you remember them. If you don't, that's okay. Uh, we're just going to make... Everybody's going to look like a fool when we do this, so don't even worry about it, okay? So uh, in your little uh, bulletin handout thingy on the side here is the timeline in icon format of the Old Testament that walks us all the way up into Nehemiah. And uh, so what we've got here is it starts off with creation. We had hand motions for this, okay? So you guys all know the hand motion? Oh man, Peter's doing it already. So it's jazz hands. Creation, because I'm sure that's what God did when he created stuff. He gave jazz hands, right? So it's creation. And then the next step in the story is fall, okay? So the fall, that was when Adam and Eve took of the thing that God told them not to. The whole world fell into sin and disrepair chaos. Uh, then the next step in the story is God calls Abraham out and he's going to make him a father of many nations. Okay, so you've got creation fall nations. And then one nation, Israel, goes into captivity. Right? Okay, we got motions. There's a captivity. They get, uh, they get placed in captivity. It's kind of an incubation time where they're growing. And then God calls them out in the Exodus. I mean, it's a very Jamin-esque thing. We haven't seen Jamin in a while, but that's because they're in Italy. So he's in Italy, way far away. <laughs> it's like this, right? Okay, sorry. <laughs> 
So we got creation, fall, nations, captivity, exodus. Okay, sorry. And uh, then the wandering. They wandered around as they took as they got done with the exodus. They wandered around a little bit, and then they landed in the promised land. Okay, promised land. And in the promised land, God sent to them to rule over them and to help them and save them the Judges. The Judges is an important book. I love that book. You should read it. It's fantastic. But they were tired of the Judges, and so they wanted a king like other nations, and so the kings were there. Where's Jonas? Thank you very much, Moose King. Uh, so the kings are over there. And then uh, they didn't listen to the kings. The kings led them astray. They actually did listen to the kings. They weren't good. And so God exiled them and then eventually is calling them back. And this is where we find Nehemiah as they called them back. You can do the wave, it's fine. Uh, so Nehemiah is this return. And in Nehemiah, he, uh, Nehemiah comes back, Ezra comes back, he builds the temple. Nehemiah comes back to rebuild a wall in order to protect Jerusalem. So upon the return, Nehemiah is here. And Nehemiah, what we find is we find he's like the judges of old, which are kind of these precursors to Jesus. He's like, uh, he's even a little bit like some of the kings of old, some of the precursors to Jesus, and even some of them like the prophets of old. Last week we saw him shake out his robes and curse people, and that was very prophet-esque. And so Nehemiah, you get to see almost this picture of Jesus. This picture of Jesus as Nehemiah shows up. But Nehemiah doesn't just show up and then everything turns into rainbows and unicorns and what did you say? Puppies and posies? Was that what you said? It's fine. Rainbows, unicorns, puppies and posies. I might have to incorporate that. It's not as though everything goes really, really well for Nehemiah. In fact, things get really, really difficult for him. And today we're going to look at a time when things get really difficult for Nehemiah. What's that? Not peachy, not, not exactly peachy K. Peachy, sure, peachy, sure, peachy K. I don't know, I've never heard that before, but that's okay. Um, I haven't heard a lot of things before. Um, yeah, peachy keen is what, yeah, what I would say. Uh-huh. Depends on if you come from a place where it's kitty corner or catty corner. Oh boy. Or catty wampus. You don't even know that. Yeah, here for, okay, we'll explain, we'll talk later. I get to teach you two things. Um, okay, so uh, today we're going to step into Nehemiah, and in the book of Nehemiah, he's going to face a bully today. Anybody ever been bullied? Raise your hand if you've been bullied. Okay, the ones who are not raising their hands, you can look at them, shame them, because they are the bullies. <laughs> Seriously, people. Yeah. If you've ever been bullied before, I was bullied a lot as a child. I'm going to give you one particular, uh, and well, I was bullied a lot as a child. I had, uh, I had a lot of bullies. I had big bullies, little bullies, bullies in between, short bullies, tall bullies, bullies who were green. I actually wrote that. It's right there. I, I know, right? <laughs> Small ones, big ones. Anyways, uh, so I was picked on for a lot of reasons. I was picked on because I was too smart. I was picked on because I didn't have enough coordination to play the foosball um, or football. I was picked on because I sweated lots. There's like one person like, <laughs> I was picked, yeah, it was you. I was picked on because I had a high voice. I don't know if I've told you this. Some of you told it. Have, who's here has heard my Mary Poppins story? Raise your hand. Like three, okay. Nobody knows this. Okay, I guess I do get to tell it. So when I was in the seventh grade play, junior high, I was like, oh man, fresh start, seventh grade, here we come, junior high, whoop, whoop. Okay, so I decided to be, try to become a drama kid. Bad idea for Brian Fultinski. But um, I had this uh, beautiful high falsetto singing voice when I was, uh, when I was younger. And uh, I got the part of Bert the Chimney Sweep, written for Dick Van Dyke. Dick Van Dyke's voice... Real low. Brian's voice? 
Uh, not so much. Okay? And so I got up to sing these songs for Dick Van Dyke and I sang them in this high falsetto, this chim chimery, you know, like that, real, real high, right? And I got done singing the song, the very first song, my nerves are just, you know, and there's this packed house, all these parents, and there's dead silence, and then there's like three people in the background going, <laughs> snickering at me. I finished the three shows and I stopped singing from seventh grade until I was in college. Stop singing in public. <laughs> Bullies exist everywhere, even sometimes in seventh grade Mary Poppins plays. I cannot watch Mary Poppins without having a little PTSD issue, just so you know. <laughs> Um, bullies should not be a surprise to humans. If you look past, if you look down history, you look throughout all of history, you're going to see bully after bully after bully after bully after bully. Bullies have goons as well, don't they? Yep, they have cronies. Today we're going to get to some bullies in the book of Nehemiah, and we'll pull up this first slide here. We're going to introduce some of the ca- some of the, the characters in Nehemiah. So in this particular chapter, in chapter six, we'll pull up. We'll see if Job can pull up that slide. There it is. Okay, we got three guys you're going to run into: Sanballat, Sanballat the Horonite, Sanballat. He's the bully. In, in this story, he is the bully. Okay, and he has certain tactics, and we're going to look at that today. But uh, he is the bully of the story. And Sanballat is, uh, historically speaking, um, there's a whole bunch of different conjecture about Sanballat. Probably the best thing that I read was that he was the guy who had such a vested interest in trying to gain uh, profit from the worship of God in Jerusalem that he actually ended up setting up the temple that we, we come to find in Samaria, which, which enters the story later when Jesus meets the woman at the well and he asks, uh, he asks her, you know, or she asks him a question about, hey, which mountain should we worship on? Because there's two temples. And we're, it looks like Sanballat was probably the guy that set that up. So Sanballat the Horonite, he's a bully. Uh, Tobiah, he's the organizer. He's one of the cronies. You know, there's always the organizer, the one who's like got the system to like, hey man, I, you know, if we really want to bully this person, we can do this, 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 and this. And I know this guy and this guy and this guy and this guy. And he's the guy that's kind of the legs behind Sanballat's bullying. And then you have Geshem. He's an Arab. Geshem the Arab. And he's the yeah, yeah guy. You know, every one of the you know, bullies, they got the yeah, yeah guy. Like, you're stupid. And then the guy's like, yeah, 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 yeah. You're stupid. Tell him you're stupid some more, right? <laughs> right? And so that's Geshem the Arab. He's like the yeah, yeah guy. <laughs> yep. And so if you can imagine these guys as we read this story... You're going to catch exactly what I'm getting at. And you know, I'm, you're laughing because you know. You're like, yeah, 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 you tell him. He's always got that high-pitched voice, too. I think it's worse because I'm nasally today. All right, so Nehemiah chapter 6 is where we're going to be. If you don't have a Bible, we, did, this, we do supply some for you in the rows. If you, or just snuggle up next to somebody who's got one. It's all good. All right, Nehemiah chapter 6. <clears throat> When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message, Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. Oh, no. 
But yeah, you can't even write that stuff, right? But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messages to them with this reply. I'm carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message and each time I gave them the answer. Then the fifth time, Sanballat sent his aide to me with the same message. And in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, it is reported among the nations. And Geshem says that it's true. See, the yeah, yeah guy, Geshem says, yeah, 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 that's true, boss, that's true. That you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king, and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There's a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king, so come, let us confer together. I sent them this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making this up out of your own head. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work, but it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. One day, I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the son of Mehedabel, who was shut in in his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple and let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night they are coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away or should one like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, because of what they have done. Remember all the prof- Remember also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who have been trying to intimidate me. So the wall was completed on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. When all, when all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Also in those days, the nobles of Judah were sending many, many letters to Tobiah and replies from Tobiah kept coming to them. For many in Judah were under oath to him since he was son-in-law to Shegeniah, son of Era, and his son Johanan married, uh, had married the daughter of Meshulam, son of Berechiah. Moreover, they kept reporting to me his good deeds and then telling him what I said. And Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. So Tobiah, you see that, right? Like he's the organizer. He's the one who's bought everybody. He's the one who's built these relationships that he can leverage. Sanballat's the one who's kind of flexing his muscle all the time and always pointing which way to intimidate. And Geshem, he just kind of plays this yeah, yeah part. But these bullies have a certain tactic. And I'm going to point these tactics out as we walk through. We're going to kind of walk back through this chapter. So in uh, in the first four verses, we see a very classic bully tactic. We'll call it the stall tactic. It's the stall tactic. Okay? What, what happens is Sanballat and his posse, they start attacking Nehemiah by trying to distract him. By trying to get him to go to a meeting. By, to get him to go to a board meeting. This should prove to you once and for all that board meetings are from the enemy. Amen. <laughs> yeah, Doug. Let that out. It's been stored up a long time. They tried to <laughs> so they they try to distract him with things that are good. Like they're good. Board meetings are okay. You have to have them. Apparently by law, you have to have them. But they're trying to distract him from the mission that is at hand. And this is a classic tactic. And then in verses five through nine, it continues. They they don't just stop with this stall tactic. They don't they don't start you know they, they don't start with full frontal attacks or anything like that. What they do is they start to do end arounds. And so the next one they throw out is the tattletale tactic. And you saw that in verses five through nine, where they're like, "Hey, just so you know, I think that you're trying to become the king, and I'm gonna t- I'm I'm gonna tell the king on you. I'm gonna tell." And they step up with this tattletale tactic. I'm going to tell Artaxerxes on you. 
Sanballat concocts this crazy story about how Nehemiah is running for king and that he's going to lead an insurrection. And this, this goes to show that Sanballat, he, he didn't actually do his homework because if he did, he would have realized that Nehemiah was this, probably the third in command. Artaxerxes knew him personally and he actually had conversation with Artaxerxes and the queen. It's a scare tactic. And then it continues. Uh, verses 10 through 14, you see this, uh, this, this, this moment where all of a sudden he's been given a sucker choice. Hey, either come and meet with me in the temple or face death. And so what he's seeing there is when he meets in the temple, if he's going to meet in the temple, what you're not reading there is Nehemiah was not a prophet. He was not a priest. He was not a king. He had no special standing. He was just a guy who was kind of like a contractor. And so what was happening is he's going, no, if I step into the temple, God's going to kill me because I'm not supposed to be there. I'm not allowed in there. That's not where I'm supposed to go. Should a man like me step into the temple is what he says. And so they're given him this sucker choice. Either die at the hand of God or die at the hand of Sanballat. Who's stronger? Which one are you more afraid of? Okay, so he's given this sucker choice. This is also a classic bully scheme. They give you a sucker choice like, hey, either meet me at the playground at 3.30 or you're going to face, everybody's going to tell you how weak you are. You got those only, those are the only two choices you get, right? Classic sucker choice tactic for bullies. And then the last one is this, what we'll, we're going to call it the family feud tactic. And so what happens is this is when Tobiah flexes his muscles and he starts organizing people. You read this in this last chunk where he's writing letters. They're writing letters back and forth. And he's like writing letters to, uh, to uh, Nehemiah trying to get him to stop the work or come down and meet. And uh, these people are writing back to, uh, writing back to Tobiah, or the, excuse me, Tobiah's writing letters. To the to the elders and the elders are writing letters of what's being said back to uh, back to Tobiah and Tobiah is writing letters to Nehemiah and it's just this huge circle and Nehemiah, and uh, Tobiah is in the middle just being the puppet master of it all again a classic bully tactic to gain a large group of people they're the ones standing around going fight 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 they just want to see blood. So this is kind of the classic bully tactic playbook is what you're reading here. You've got this, this stuff happens all the time. It happened when I was a kid. But here's what I want you to think about. Here's where I want you to, here's where I, where I think we need to go. And this is me trying to train you of how to read the scriptures because of course this is a historical account. This is something that's seen from at least one point of view. It's seen from Nehemiah's point of view and he's trying to point out what's going on. But here's what I want you to see. I want you to see that in this you begin to see Nehemiah who's like this shadow of Jesus or this, this, uh, this, this fingerprint of Jesus and you see the tactics that are being, that are being thrown at him to try to stop him from the mission that has been given to him. And I will tell you that we we have been given a mission. You have been given a mission. I don't know if I, I was going to... I actually didn't even write this in here. I was just going to go into how the enemy is going to try to stop you from your mission. But you need to know this. Every single one of you as a believer, if you are in fact in Christ, has been given a mission. You've been given a spiritual gift. You've been given some sort of... You've been given a life. You've been given a job. You've been given also a spiritual gift that's been poured into you that you ought to be using for the good of the body of Jesus Christ. And that doesn't just mean here. That means out there, the greater body. And so when we encourage you to get involved serving and get out of church, pray for people, um, you know, even if, you're, even if your spiritual gift of service is bringing in Jerry's Cakes and Donuts, which is Will's spiritual gift of service, I commend your spiritual gift of service. Sir. Thank you very much. 
Um, you know, even if it's that, whatever it is, the whole de- the whole idea here is doing something to encourage the body of Jesus Christ to be lifted up in love and good deeds. That is that is our mission. All of us have been given that mission. And then additionally, all of us have been given the mission of going and making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. We've been given that mission. That is our mission. It's why we do what we do here. And I will tell you that there is a very real enemy, a very real system that, that an enemy is in control of that is trying to battle against that mission and will try to keep you off mission with all kinds of different tactics. All kinds of different tactics. And I'm just going to run through these real quick. Much like the stall tactic where Sanballat was trying to distract and trying to stop Nehemiah from doing the work by giving him board meetings, the enemy will try to distract you. The enemy will try to distract you. And it will distract you. The enemy will distract you. He will distract you with things that are good. Things that are really good sometimes. But ultimately, not the best. And I've, I've heard it said, and I don't even remember who said it, but it you know, preaches pretty well. But the problem is, it's not just that you're doing good things, but when good things become God things, when they become the things that you worship, it ruins everything. And that is what, that is what the enemy will do, is he will throw all kinds of good things to you. He's not, a, he's not necessarily an overt enemy. He's very covert. He's very wise. Oftentimes we think the devil's a red guy with horns and a furry backside and a tail and hooves and he carries around a pitchfork, right? That's a really bad representation of the devil. He's a very beautiful, very cunning, very deceptive individual. He's been around a long time. He's not eternal, but he certainly has been around a long time and he knows exactly how people tick. And he will slide a million billion good things in front of you, especially in our world. He will slide a million billion good things in front of you in America. Things that are good. Sometimes we even think they're necessary. But they can often distract. They can often distract. A few examples that are, are, pretty, uh, uh, are, are pretty prevalent. Um, I lost my spot. A few, 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 few examples here would be like, oh, for instance, would be like people who have a vibrant faith. They, I, I've known a few people, incredibly vibrant faith. They, they love Jesus with all their heart, with all their mind. They're really excited about a mission and, and they view all of a sudden, say, the political arena out here in the United States and they go, okay, man, I think God's given me this, uh, oh, He's given me this stuff. I need to go, I need to go jump into the political arena. I will tell you, I have not seen very many people succeed very far in politics without compromising their faith. Or, for instance, um, well, we have this actually all the time, the soccer mom thing, right? Like, our families have all kinds of really good things thrown at them, and we're like, hey, kids, I want you to have this, and 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 all of a sudden, we're running around to 19 places on Monday, 22 places on Tuesday, 4 places on Wednesday, so we get a break, and then 17 places every other day the rest of the week. And next thing you know, we don't have any time for anybody, period. Now, is your family a good thing? You better believe it. Are your kids necessary? You better believe it. Is pouring into them and training them a good thing? But what are you training them in? What's the best thing to train them in? Godliness. One of the best distraction tactics I know in our society is the distraction tactic of busyness. The distraction tactic of busyness. 
you know, we're getting ready to launch a, a different service, right? And so we have to struggle with this. Are we doing another service because it makes you busy? Well, we're actually doing it to address a few other issues. God's kind of moved this way and all that type of stuff. But uh, one of the ethoses of this new service is to lay your busyness down and enter into God's rest. Because churches can be just as bad at this busyness thing. So the enemy will also try to accuse you and intimidate you. He won't just distract you. He's going to try to accuse you and intimidate you. Just like these guys made up a story, the enemy is going to try to accuse you and intimidate you. He's going to try to concoct stories about you in your head or in somebody else's head. And then he's going to attempt you to act on those stories. Just wait until your boss finds out about this one. Oh man. Just wait until your wife finds out who you really are. It's better to just keep hiding. If your friends really knew what you struggled with, you wouldn't even have any friends. Those are the storylines. Those are the storylines that get told time and time again. Those are the accusations and the intimidation. They're intimidation tactics because they try to try to dissuade you from continuing in what is best for you and sliding your attention into something that is not. The enemy will also try to trap you. The enemy will try to trap you. The devil will give you a sucker choice. Either it goes this way or it goes this way, and there is nothing in between. Either either you get out of this relationship or you stay in it and it's horrible. That's a sucker choice. There are a million billion other opportunities, other choices in the middle of all that. A million billion. You don't know which way it's going to go, but the enemy will try to trap you by trying to portray a future that he thinks he knows. And he hasn't the foggiest idea what the future holds. The best advice I can give myself in these situations, I simply need to fear Jesus more than I fear the circumstances and the potential future that the enemy conjures up in my head and in my mind and in my heart. One of the tactics that's often used by the enemy in this particular particular situation when the enemy tries to trap you is money. If you're ever going to do anything incredible, if you're going to ever do anything um, you know, out there, everything risky, if you're going to go say, I don't know, it's one of the most risky things I know, if you're going to say go take your family all the way over and just move to the Middle East and go try to figure out a new life and learn how to be a light, you think money's going to be an issue? Yeah, and what's the first thing that's going to be the roadblock that might distract you? I don't know if I can afford this, Jesus. I only have limited money that I've scraped and I've saved. And I don't think you're powerful enough to bring me to that place. And it's a moment where all of a sudden that sucker choice will start to become a trap where it unwinds everything and we forget about God's character, His graciousness, His power, His mercy, and His provision. And we just stay put and don't do a thing. It's one of the number one tactics. This happened actually, uh, it happens in every short-term mission trip. Happens every short-term mission trip. Last time we uh, we went to the Philippines, uh, I had I dragged Jesse and John and Jamin with me, and all three of them, all three of them, and myself included, I think in January, I, we all said, "I don't know if this is going to happen," and I had to keep on this straight face, like, "Oh, dude, you got to just have faith." But inside, I'm like, "I don't know if this is going to happen." <laughs> right? Like, it was really bad, actually. It was pretty touch and go. Um, but I just, and I kept trying to tell these guys, you just watch, you keep, you keep taking a step and God's going to provide it, right? Because I know that it's happened, even though I don't know that it's happened. And so the way we talked about it, Jesse and I did, is I know it here, but I may not know it here. 
And it's a trap that God uses to distract you. And it's just one of many examples. And then lastly, the enemy will try to recruit and leverage others. He will try to recruit and leverage others against you. There will be naysayers that will come out of nowhere to tell you how unlikely it is that you will complete the thing that God has called you to do. And sometimes these naysayers are you. Sometimes these naysayers are your friends who are sitting here. Sometimes these naysayers are your family. Oftentimes it's my mother-in-law. Oh wait, never mind. I didn't say. That. I didn't say. That. I'm sorry. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Sorry. We got to scrub that from the recording. Thanks, Nick. Um, there will be somebody who will come in and say things like, "Have you really thought through this? I don't think you've actually thought about everything that could go wrong." Of course I didn't. Otherwise, I would have never signed up for this whole thing, right? And it all boils down to this. Whose voice is louder and more powerful to you? See, there are three voices that you need to discern all the time. There's the voice of the Lord. There's the voice of the enemy and the voice of yourself. And I know we've talked about this even in Nehemiah before, but it's good to remind people. There's the voice of the Lord that you can read through His Word. You can have in your heart and the Holy Spirit moves in you. So the voice of the Lord, there's the voice of yourself. The voice of yourself is often the one who's very squeamish, who's very fearful, who's like, I don't know what I'm doing. It's not a decisive way one or the other. And then there's the voice of the enemy saying, no, you can't, you won't, and it's not going to happen. It all boils down to that. Which voice is louder? Do you trust the voice of the Lord saying, come to the land to which I will show you? Or do you trust the voice of the Lord saying, um, I have given you my spirit. Apart from me, you can do, do nothing. But with me, with Christ, there's not much you can't go through. See, lately it's become painfully obvious to me that we live in a world that loves to make spiritual observations about all kinds of things but does nothing. If you make observations about stuff and do nothing about it, what's that called? If you complain about something and never do anything about it, what's that called? It's called whining. It's called whining. Complaining about stuff and never doing anything is called whining. We live in a world that spiritual whining equals like maturity. If we can sit and nitpick about every single thing that's spiritually wrong all around us, everything that's spiritually wrong in the people all around us, we think that's spiritually mature. But application, spiritual application, you read the Bible and you go, okay, God has called me to something, and if I don't jump in, if I don't get to this, if I don't get rolling, if I don't walk along with Jesus, if I don't jump through this window, I will miss out on hearing and obeying the voice of the Lord. If we don't focus on spiritual application, if we don't focus on actually doing what we read, then it's either that we don't believe it or that God hasn't actually spoken to us. Spiritual whining is something that I think settles into our hearts and our souls. And it becomes an ethos of everything around us. And the enemy knows this and he will induce this in us and he will tackle that in us all of the time. But when we obey the words of Jesus, life changes. When we read the words of Jesus and we follow what he's telling us to do and we move and we take a step, even when we don't really know what's going on, life begins But we first must admit to Him and to ourselves that we need new ears to be able to hear His Word and a new heart to be broken by His Word and new feet of faith to follow where He tells us. You know, 
Um, I'm just going to finish on this. The, I, I have had a lot of bullies in my life, but none has been such a big bully as the voice in my head that probably is me. There was one moment where uh, I, I remember the, the time where I followed that voice in my head that was me led to nothing but destruction in my life, everywhere. It led to sensuality, to pleasure, to doing whatever I want. You know, when I was uh, when I was in my early 20s, I had a systematized plan that I was going to drink myself silly. I was going to run around on my wife and then I was going to blame her when I left her. That was my systematized plan. That's the voice that was me listening to the enemy. And I thank God that Jesus, somewhere along the line, came in and he snapped and... And my ears were open and my eyes were open and my heart was open and it was crushed. And I said, enough fooling around because everything that I touch is being destroyed. And I'm watching everything be destroyed around me. And unless I obey your word and follow you, life will not come. And that was the first moment of taking a step of faith. The first moment of taking a step of faith. And I will tell you there have been many, many, many moments after that that led us all the way Rabbit City, South Dakota. (laughs) Which is where every good story ends. But it has led to the Philippines and to Malawi and to El Salvador and to Mexico and to Rapid City and to Duluth, which is like a foreign country. And, uh, And it's led to all these different places. And I can, right now, I can conjure up and and think of all of the thousands of people that I've had the pleasure of being able to walk through Scripture with and the people who have begged for prayers for their family members and the people who have asked for salvation because they realized they were broken. And I can think through all of that and see and see that not a single one of that was possible without a step of faith and obedience to what God called. So I will tell you that when God calls you to do something and you take a step, not only does life begin, but you change. Jesus, come before you, and uh, I just ask that that today you would help my friends and myself take steps of faith, whatever in the world you're calling us to, even if it's just simply to be a person who is so brokenhearted by the lost around us that we pray day in and day out. Lord, I pray that we would take up that mantle and obey you. If you're calling us to drop what we're pursuing right now and pursue reconciliation and redemption and salvation, if you're calling us to drop the stuff that's causing destruction all around us, Lord, I pray that we wouldn't be so prideful as to hold on to our destruction while we're going to hell, but that we would drop it. That we would humble ourselves and that we'd come to you and say, Lord, I need you and I need your life and I need your heart and I need your ears and I need your eyes. And Lord, if there's those here who are just feeling broken all around them and they see the brokenness that's around them, they see the brokenness that's happening all around them and the death and destruction that's there and it's not something they're doing but they're just a part of, I pray that these people, that my friends and myself would come to your presence and just say, Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. I need you like I've needed no no other. And Lord, I pray that you'd bring us healing that you bring us salvation. And as we sing this song, Lord, I pray that we would do business with you, that we would praise you, that we would lift our hands, that we would give ourselves up, that we would stop being prideful, and that we would just stop and turn towards you 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope you have been blessed. Please join us again at Common Ground Church.